Oren, welcome back. Thanks. Excited to be back. You're how many years into running a data as a service business? A little over four. Okay. I've talked to a lot of infrastructure as a service companies, software as a service companies, platform as a service companies, only one data as a service company. And it's more than four years into your company. Why are you the only data as a service company? Well, there are other data as a service companies, right? So there, there are plenty of data DAS companies, but of the successful companies in the world, if you think of like SaaS versus DAS, it's probably 500 to one, maybe even 1,000 to one. So there's just way more SaaS unicorns than there are DAS unicorns. Why are you the only non-domain specific data as a service provider? Well, we, SafeGraph is a domain specific. So SafeGraph has data about physical places, and that's all the data that we have. So our goal is to have data on every single place in the world and, and every attribute about the place. And we're, we're very far from that goal today. So there's there's roughly the same number of places as people worldwide. And there's probably like 10,000 relevant attributes about a place. If you think of your home, it might be the number of bathrooms or what the soil is made out of or what the roof is made out of or you know the, the last time, the, the sale price of the home or all these different attributes you might search for, right? So there's just lots and lots of attributes about a place. And then there's lots of different places in the world. How much margin in the location data as a service business do you have to unlock before you expand into the second vertical? Well, I mean... Before you move out of places, is that what you're asking? Yeah, into something else. Well, the places market's a really big market. So there, there are already about a 1,000 companies that sell data about physical places. So we're one of a 1,000 different companies. There's some huge companies like CoStar is a $35 billion market cap company. And it sells data mostly about offices. So if you want to learn about like the office rents in America, they have a really good data set on that. They also sell some data about apartments. And so there's, um, you know, the CoreLogic recently sold for $6 billion and they have really good data about physical places. So there's a lot of companies that sell data about physical places. And there's really only four things you would want data on, right? So there's data about people, data about places. That's where SafeGraph plays in. There's data about companies or organizations, and then there's data about products. And so those are the four main categories. You could join those. And so there's lots of different companies that are on the join of those. And then you could also mix them with time or with price. So if you wanted to get like a stock ticker data feed, right, that would be data about companies mixed with a time mixed with price. So you can get the tick of AT&T going back over 100 years. Maybe 100 years ago, that tick was by day. You know, now you can get the tick maybe by 10th of a second or something. But but it's a really, you know, really probably high quality data feed that you can use and you can backtest a lot of your models using that type of data. So let's say you're post series B at this point, right? Or series A? Yeah, post series B. Yeah. Post series B. You rate your series B was what a year ago? Uh, six months ago. Six months ago. Okay, so let's say theoretically in another six months, you're profitable to the tune of like three times your cost of goods sold plus your salaries. Would you reinvest your profits into going deeper into the location data category or the places category or would you expand into like companies or something yeah we would our goal is to have data about every single place in the world so we're extremely far from that i don't think we're going to hit our goal for the next until five years from now so you know we would add more countries we add more uh, uh places if you think of data as just rows and columns 
right? You can add more rows. So that would be, let's say, more geographies or more places within the U.S. So, for instance, Safecraft doesn't have data about houses in, in the U.S. or something. And then you could also add more columns. Those would be more attributes. And our, our goal would be to add more rows, more columns until we, we actually hit every, and you know, there's certain things that you prioritize. So, you know, we don't have any data about North Korea today, and we don't have a lot of clients that want data about North Korea, but one day, hopefully we'll also have data about North Korea as well. I heard some SafeGraph related podcast, I think it was like a couple years ago when I was, I think it was after I interviewed Ryan or before I interviewed Ryan. And it was about like the infrastructure or what we know about the SafeGraph infrastructure publicly. And it sounded a lot like the Google indexing problem, where basically you have indeterminate data about what should be a source of truth. There should be a best article on the internet about how to produce a podcast. It should be somewhat definitive. Similarly, there should be definitive data about like the subway restaurant on Market Street, right? So it's basically the same problem because you have to aggregate subjective data into an objective truth, right? Yes. It's basically the same problem. Yeah, it's a very similar problem. There are some differences. So in in Google's case, they might present you with hundreds of different potential truths. And then they're basically saying to you, you sort through those truths and you figure out the truth and or figure out the right truth for you, right? Um, and so they'll, 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 they might give you many, many different articles about podcasting. And then you in, in SafeGraph, we're really trying to give one answer. So we are trying to get to the truth about a fact. And that fact might be that Subway opens at 8 a.m. on a Tuesday. And of course, that fact might change. It maybe used to open at 7.30 a.m. and now it opens at 8 a.m. And so we need to not only have the fact, but then update the fact in a timely on a timely basis. And so we gather data from many, many different sources, and those sources may have a conflicting data. One of them might say it's open at 8 a.m. One of them says it's open at 7.30 a.m. Both of them could have been right at certain points in time, but maybe only one of them is right right now. Maybe none of them are right right now. So we have to use the different types of data to try to figure out the truth and figure it out. And our goal is to be 100% true. We will never be 100% true just because we have billions and billions of facts that we have data on. And so it's impossible to get to 100% true, but we're not satisfied even when we're at 99%. Like we have to keep going and our clients find bugs, our our users find bugs, our customers find bugs, our, our employees find bugs all the time. And then one of the things that we also do is publish our bugs. So we try to every month say, hey, we had all these bugs last month. Here's our problems. Here's what we try to do. Here's how we, here's how we went through it. And it's just a never ending problem to get to the truth. But we just sell facts. So there's a lot of companies that sell analytics or predictions or lots of other types of things or some sort of subjective. Like for SafeGraph, we're, we're just in the business of selling facts. So it's, it's, it's really just like news. These things happen. This is the truth of something. And then our customers take those facts and then they build upon that. And hopefully they build these great innovations. But they need to, the number one thing that they're relying on us for is that those facts are true. The problem with Google is that there's a veneer of objectivity over ranking of things in the world, but there's actually two ranking systems. There's the paid ranking system and the unpaid ranking system, which is the ads business versus the non-ads business. But in some sense, it's actually even more truthful because it's saying, here's the version of the truth that somebody paid for. 
and here's the version of the truth that we're presenting in an unpaid capacity. Those are actually just like two different offerings relative to what SafeGraph is offering, which is basically truth as a service. Yep. Yep. That's right. Is the SafeGraph business potentially proportional to that truth as a service business that Google vends? You know, it's uh, in some ways it's it's also different. Who's your customer, right? And so, and when you you're going to have a different product, even for like truth, you're going to have a different product for different customers. So, in some ways, you could think of SafeGraph as just a news organization. We publish news. We publish facts of the world, right? That's what news organizations. If you think of like AP or something, like they just they publish facts of the world or Reuters or whatever it might be. But a news organization, like their customer is an individual news consumer who can kind of like read through the pros and disambiguate and they're, they're a relatively intelligent person and they're trying to understand that. In SafeGraph's case, our customer is generally a data scientist who's taking in a bunch of artifacts. They're not, not maybe not a human is looking over each one and then they're running it through some sort of model and they're using that model to either make some sort of prediction or some sort of optimization or, or some other type of thing. And so they need to, first of all, have these facts categorized in a way where you can run it through a model. So if it was just in prose in an article, this would be very difficult maybe for a data scientist to, to use that. So if you, if you thought of like maybe the, you could have a description of a baseball game or you can have the box score. The box score would be very, very easy for a data scientist to, to take apart whereas maybe a description, a long description of a baseball game may be enjoyable for a human to read, but less good for like a machine learning algorithm to, to, to parse through. So our customer is that data scientist, but everyone in the Google customer is not necessarily an algorithm, right? They are an algorithm, but they don't sell two algorithms. They're really focused on the individual human to actually go through. And so they have a, a different experience because of that. What's the hardest data engineering problem you're dealing with right now? Well, I mean, there's many, many hard engineering problems. One of the hardest ones. Well, uh, you know, I, I think the hardest one changes all the time. And so by the time this podcast goes to <laughs> our right. light, you know, there, I mean, there may be a different one. Schrodinger's that, that, data engineering problem. Yes, exactly. Yes, that's exactly right. We're not sure if the cat is alive or dead. I think there's a lot of different issues. So, I mean, just the, but the simple one that is always hard is how do you know something is true and how do you know it continues to be true? And there's some things that, you know, have some sort of def definitive thing, like your birth date is definitive. I, I know, you know, it, it, your your birth date is X. Here's when Jeff was born or your something Your calendar, like that. I know, knows my birthday. That's right. Or your email system. That's, One that's, of the two that's knows right. my birthday. That's right. Or at least your birthday, maybe not your date or the time of your birth or something like that. But these are things that are that are somewhat definitive. And in your birth date, doesn't change. Your social security number is somewhat definitive. That could change. Maybe you enter the witness protection program or something. But for most people, probably is fairly um, definitive. And you know, but, but you know, many many other things about somebody could change. Imagine your marital status could change, or obviously your age changes all the time, right? And so there's many many different things about you that that change. And so even if they were true in the past, they may not be true in the future. And so this is a very very difficult problem of not only making sure that something is true today, but something continues to be true over time. And store hours is really, and so, I mean, we had a very, you know, we, we just went through this last year and a half with COVID. And so if you just think of like the store hours of a place, so first of all, store hours do change all the time. So that's just something even pre-COVID, the average McDonald's might've been changing their store hours on a, on a pretty regular basis. 
And then they may also change so just because on every Tuesday it was open at 8 a.m. On a specific Tuesday, like maybe the, that Tuesday happened to be Christmas, that may have very, very different store hours on a very, very specific Tuesday. And so you need a, a whole other system to understand like, okay, there are, there are some exceptions to Tuesdays. And then during COVID, in some cases, we had places that were changing their store hours every single day. And so it was really, really hard to stay up to date on, on some of these things. So even something like a store hour thing, you don't think it changes that much, but it changes all the time. And there's lots and lots of other data that is in flux quite a bit. To what extent do you involve yourself in lower-level engineering-related decisions? Personally? Yeah, personally. I wouldn't say I'm personally that involved in, in, in most of the engineering decisions. We have a great engineering team at SafeGraph. We have great engineering leadership. We have really, really strong folks all the way through. And so I spent a lot of time on products, so like figuring out like what's the new products we should be building and on talking to customers and trying to learn what they need to do. And I also would never get hired on our engineering teams. Like I'm not a good enough engineer to get a job on our engineering team. Uh, even though you know, a long time ago, I used to code. Even back then, I wasn't good enough to get on the SafeGraph engineering team. When the decision was made to go more heavily into the Spark realm instead of the Snowflake realm, did you recuse yourself from that decision or did you listen heavily and consider opining? Or did you just not even think about it? You just let the engineering team or the decision was made without your intervention at all? Yeah, most, I mean, 99% of the decisions at SafeGraph, maybe even more, are made without even consulting me in any way at all, which is great. So I think CEOs should spend the vast majority of their time on the, the biggest, biggest decisions in the company. And then they should spend some of their time on these tiny, tiny little decisions and nothing in between. They should never spend their time on like the mid-level decisions in the company, if possible. And choice of Spark versus Snowflake is a mid-level decision? Yeah. Yeah. It's, an, a very, it's an important decision. It's not the biggest decision in the world. If you make a mistake, first of all, they're probably all, both good choices. So it, it might not even matter, right? They're, they're both incredible systems to, to go on. And so, you know, that might move later about who you recruit or other types of things, but, but like, you know, and, and they're, they're both reversible types of decisions. There may be a cost to reversing it, but they're both reversible type decisions. So, you know, but like very, very big strategic things, you know, other types. And then these small things would be really important because they add up. So that often like there are things about culture, some of the really, really small things. And so the, and the CEO can't be involved in every small thing. So they need to pick and choose some, some small things they need to get involved. But the mid-level things are things that personally I try to stay away from as much as possible. The financing markets are changing rapidly. How do you make sure you right-size your investment capital strategy to the constantly changing times? Well, there's a lot of different flavors of the day that, that finance markets reward. And I think if you're constantly chasing that, then this is a, like a, a difficult strategy. So you just, you need to have some sort of consistent view of the world. And, you know, SafeGraph happens to be an extremely capital efficient company. That isn't necessarily what is most rewarded today. So um, today, 
things, growth is rewarded well. There's always some sort of give and take between growth and capital efficiency. But today, I would say like 99% of the weight of venture capitalists is on growth and maybe 1% you know, or 95.5 on capital efficiency. We've seen scenarios where it's more like 50-50 or you know, other types of things. And so for Safegraph, we are, we, we are growing very, very fast, let's say you know, 100% year over year. But the markets would probably prefer a company that was growing 400% or 300% year over year with a lot less capital efficiency. But we are what we are. We are a extremely capital efficient company that has that's in our DNA. And maybe the markets a year from now will much more reward, um, you know, relatively fast growing still, you know, 100% year over year, but companies that are more capital efficient. I noticed you brought paper. Always brought paper, yeah. Could you do a napkin graph right now? Sure, sure. Okay, what do you want to do? Uh, say, I don't even know if we can get this on camera here, but you can definitely do I'll it. Try you to can just draw it and then try to describe it. Camera. Okay, so or I can take uh, a picture and we can uh, yeah we can intersperse. You always, it you always have to start like this, right? So uh, it's always not good. always, not always. Yeah, there's lots of different things. So let's say, uh, I mean, a simple one would be number of times Oren has been on software engineering daily right first of all i gotta get my signature in very important and then okay one okay we'll see 2017 2018 2019 2020 2021 and then okay let's use a different pen to get this thing going Okay, so we got 2017, uh, 2018, 2019, 2020, nope, 20, <laughs> right? So, all right, so this is this is the graph over uh, here. I don't know if we can get this on camera here. We'll get it on camera. So, yeah, one on 2017, one on 2018, one on 2019, mm-hmm. zero on 2020, mm-hmm. 2021. We can do one on, uh, so, you know, I launched a podcast. I mean, if we can we do a non-axis one? Non-axis, uh, non-axis description of safe graph. How about my new podcast, World of DAS versus okay, Software Engineering Daily? I mean, so I just realized this. I, I'm embarrassed that I just realized this, but the name of your company is Safe Graph and you're drawing napkin graphs. Yeah, I love graphs. They are yeah. safe graphs. A napkin graph is definitively safe. Yeah. Well, for, okay, let's. Is let's, there a let's, dangerous let's, napkin let's graph? Let's do that one. Let's do the dangerous napkin graph. Napkingraph.com valuation. Do you own that? Of course. Um, Is it used yet? Nope. No, if you go to it right now. So it's going to look something like this, right? Dollars, time. This is really what you do in the investment capital markets these days. Right? Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> this is uh, the true Trojan horse of SafeGraph. Yeah, exactly. The so the napkin graph, that napkingraph.com that I bought for $10 uh, a year ago. That's probably worth um, at least twelve dollars today, so it's already many, already appreciated twenty um, percent. My how investment. many SafeGraph.x domains do you own? Oh, good question. Probably not that many. Not that many. Yeah, okay. probably most of the important ones. But you know, some domain troll out there on listening to your podcast wants to go buy SafeGraph.fr or DE or something. We probably don't own all of those. Have you had to deal with any um, like adversarial attacks, like somebody reselling your data or like? doing something weirdly adversarial or has it been mostly pretty easy business in that regard? I'd say mostly good. Like, you know, one of the problems with data as opposed to software is um, 
when somebody buys your data, they're they're signing a document saying they can't resell that or put out in the public domain. They have to they have to because your data is your lifeblood. That is your that's your product, and it's very easily to replicate is data. You but luckily, I mean, most people are good actors. They're they're not trying to do something bad. They may you know by accident leave a you know a port open on an AWS bucket or something like that, and then you have to go they have to go fix it. But but generally, they're they're trying to do the the right thing. And so, data companies do have that issue. And some you know data companies like SafeGraph will salt our data as well. So for certain customers, you know you can um, you can salt your data. You can do and you know back in the day, if you if you know like the map makers, they would put like fake places in their maps. So when their maps were copied, they knew that that Did that really happen. Yeah. Yeah. What? Yeah. So back in the day, like the old map makers in Europe. Also, why do you know that? So, well, you know, if you're a data person, you would that that, that you have to know. Is that, that a Wikipedia article? I'm or sure there's a really a good Wikipedia dense, article on obscure it. Obscure book that you own. Absolutely, probably all of the above. Yeah, yeah, probably all of the above. So yeah, you're you know people will salt their data. They'll do other types of things in their their data where you know point oh one percent of the you data. Can do that. You can do that. You, you can create little fingerprints and and other types of things, but. Luckily, like we've never had to really use them. We have great customers, and they they treat our data with respect. And you know, just like you know, any type of thing that can be can be used or abused, certainly data can be. How does the sales incentivization policy at SafeGraph compare to that of LiveRamp? From what you know about LiveRamp, or from what you used to know about LiveRamp? Well, I, I mean, I think sales is is always in. Enterprise sales is a very, very hard thing to do. I think it's really hard to be an enterprise sales person. It's an incredibly challenging and also rewarding and very, very interesting job. A lot of people don't want to be in enterprise sales, um, which is partially why enterprise sales people are paid so much because a lot of super talented people, for whatever reason, don't don't think it's a good profession. I, I think it's an incredibly rewarding and wonderful profession. Um, it's really interesting. You get to talk to like super smart people about real their their interesting problems. It's a it's a challenge every single day. So every day you're you're incredibly challenged, and um and it's it's a very very hard job. So and which is kind of a, often why jobs are often rewarding is because they're hard. So um it's a I wouldn't say the challenge of of selling uh, DAS products is 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 you know obviously it's different than selling SaaS products, but it, but there's a lot of similarities as well. You have to understand the customer's need. Um, you don't want to oversell the customer, so you're you're really trying to make sure you're you're delivering something to the customer that the customer wants. In SafeGraph's case, and same with LiveRamp, and, and most most you know either SaaS companies or DAS companies, if the customer churns after a year, you don't really make money. In fact, often you'll lose money. And so if you had a lot of customers that were churning after a year, this would be really bad business and you probably would not last very long so as, a, as a company. So you need to, well, first of all, it starts with the salesperson. You need to make sure that they actually do need this product. You can't sell them something that they don't want or that's going to sit on a shelf or something like that. This would be really bad for your business. You have to make sure that for almost every single customer, there's a true customer need and they really can benefit. It doesn't always work out. So there'll be cases where it doesn't work out or the customer decides to change their mind or there's different priorities or the customer obviously can go out of business. There's many cases where your customer could still churn. But 
if you have a high rate of churn, you're not going to be a successful successful company. And from a dollar churn perspective, you need to get to negative churn from a dollar perspective. Every single every single good enterprise SaaS company or or DAS company has a negative dollar churn. But even from like an actual churn of customers, if you're churning more than let's say you know 10% of your customers a year or something like that, you're going to have a very very difficult time staying in business. This podcast is. Five shows per week, 50 weeks per year, five ads per show. Five times five times 50 is 1,250 ads per year. We are trying to figure out our sales strategy, and we're entirely bootstrapped. How would you architect that problem? Well, I, I don't know. Um, I, I really don't know anything about podcasting. I mean, w- one of the things with 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 ads, I used to be, I used to know a lot more about the ads business. But there's a lot of ad aggregation companies because there's a lot of publishers that are you know similar to you that are relatively small. They've got like you know very very core niche audience, whether it's for podcasting or website or you know what, whatever um, you know what, whatever the publisher might be, a social media app or something like that. They got a re- and and they they can't necessarily afford to have a whole big sales channel, and also a, a buyer of ads wouldn't want to just spend all their time on just that one sh- you know that one particular uh, publisher uh, because that that doesn't necessarily hit their reach. So they want there are often all these aggregators that sit in between the publisher and the buyer SSPs. Uh, could be lots of different types of things, right? So SSPs are one type of aggregator, but there's 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 dozens of different types of aggregators. And you know, in the old school, there were like just people that would rep many different newspapers and many different magazines and stuff like that. Agencies, yeah, it could be an agency or it could be um, you know other types of reps. That so when would you're doing library, you buying. kind of thought of you thought of this. You thought of the agency. You could kind of bucket the agencies with DSPs or SSPs, sort of. Well, not necessarily, but but you, you know, just call them aggregators. In yeah, your there's head? all these there's all these different types of aggregators and they do things in different ways. Again, you can have an old school aggregator, which is just like a person that would, you know, try to like insert this little subscription notice into all these different types of magazines and newspapers and stuff like that. And they would go to all of them and then make some sort of deal. And then they would get to, let's say, millions of people. And then like that, that, that could work. But if it got to only in the hundreds of thousands, like it wouldn't work for the end advertiser. And so they would go around and take a, you know, and then they'd take a, let's say a 10% brokerage fee or something like that for making that happen. So a lot of aggregators have existed since, you know, basically modern advertising in like the 30s started happening. Um, so the last hundred years, there once you started getting professional advertising, you also started getting aggregators who could help make that happen and help make, you know, both the buyers and the sellers happier. And aggregators exist everywhere, right? So in every single market, markets, you know, need often they need some sort of aggregation to happen, especially if there's uh, like there's somebody who's like a market maker, who's bringing buyers and sellers together, especially when you either you want to sell to lots of different types of people, or you want to buy from lots of different types of people, then you need some sort of uh, middleman who's helping make that happen. And sometimes that's a marketplace like that we're familiar with, like Airbnb is kind of acts as that kind of marketplace. Um, And these marketplaces as as a company can be really, really valuable, but sometimes it's actually just an individual. And uh, a lot of well-known professions are individual. If you think of a real estate broker or an investment banker or something, they're, they're middlemen and then they're taking transactions from both buyers and sellers or from one or the other. So let's say I want to take a highly manual podcast ad sales business and turn it into an 
automated ad sales business. Do you have any pieces of advice? I I, I don't. I, I mean, nothing. Yeah. I, 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 Come know, on, man! Yeah. You built an ad tech company. Yeah. Well. Well. I mean, I guess the one, one advice is just figure out. Okay. Like, is there a way to get scale? Right. So, is there a way to like maybe one thousand two hundred fifty ads per year? That's not scale. Well, not really. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of scale. Yeah. It's kind of. But maybe people want to. Re- maybe maybe someone doesn't want to buy unless they're reaching an audience of X millions. Right. Well, I don't and, need that customer. Well, maybe you do. Maybe you can go to the the 10 other podcasts that are like you and you could um join together and there's not any sort other of podcasts way. like me okay well of course not. Yeah. <laughs> except yeah data as a service it's, podcast yeah world das yeah world exactly das. yeah we don't have ads unfortunately so yeah but i mean there might be ways to to go and to join together to get some sort of scale to understand that but is that the best approach i mean I how much how much how many how many deep partnerships did you do with live ramp or did you kind of try to own the stack well live ramp is middleware company right so we're live, kind of middleware we're like middleware for sales and marketing well you're a, you're a publisher Right, so you sort of. are a publisher. You publish a. We're also a sponsored um, content company, or yeah. like maybe a tracking company if we want to do tracking. Yeah, like a good publisher, like whether it's the Economist or something like that, right? Like high end publisher that publishes re- something really valuable. But like you described, Safegraph as a news company earlier. Yeah. So why can't we be a data company? We, you can be. Yeah. Okay. Should we be? I don't know. So I think, but how do you like marshal the troops? I mean, is the goal to actually just think of the idea that is believable and then you marshal the troops behind that idea? Well, I, I think every company has a different kind of vision and what, what they're, what they're, what they're attempting to do. And I also think it's also like where you are in your life and stuff. So I, I think there's a small number of problems that are key problems in the world that are going to make the world that, that could really, and then solving those problems could really make the world a significantly better place. And you know, one of those problems is the problem of democratizing data. And so you could see a world in the future where basically 12 companies control most of the data. And that's a world where uh, if you believe data is the core fuel to innovation, then that's a world where you're just going to have a lot less innovation because just 12 companies are not going to be as motivated. And then the majority of the rents for those innovations are going to accrue to those 12 companies. And neither of which is a world that I want to live in. And I don't think most people listening to this podcast would be interested. And so solving that problem is a really, really, really big deal, really allowing, really truly democratizing access to data so that any innovator can get access to data. Just like today, any innovator can get access to compute. All you need is a credit card and a bit of technical knowledge and you can get access to compute. And that's really opened up the aperture for innovators all over the world. The same thing should be true for for data. You shouldn't have to have a proprietary BD deal to get access to data. You shouldn't have to have uh, some sort of other like proprietary system to get access to data. It should be available to anybody and they should be able to start innovating on top of that data. So is your goal to push towards a world with open data as fast as possible? Yeah, I mean, open is always, but I want open access to data. So it shouldn't be that, like, we would never sign, Safegraph would never sign an exclusive deal. Let's say somebody wanted to get our data just for, like, the insurance industry or something like that. Like, we would never, or, or just for a specific market. I have the exclusive deal to your data to sell into, you know, Japan or, or something. Like, we would never sign a deal like that because we want to make sure that everybody can get access to our data. Maybe that's a huge company, but maybe that's a small researcher somewhere as well. And they should have the equal access to our data so that they can build things on top of that data. So the thing that's like good about 
focusing on location data, is that it is in many ways non-controversial. I mean, you can kind of compare yourself to the Yelp API. Like I used, I think I mentioned this to, the, to you some time ago, is that I used the Yelp API in college. I had a lot of fun playing yep. around with the Yelp API. It's like actually a really fun API. Yeah, absolutely. And so the idea of building lots of products around safe graph location data is totally conceivable to me. Yep. But if it's a mission-oriented company and you really want to drive forward this mission, probably the way to do it would be to do something shocking like health, public health care data or something. Like anonymize public health care data. Let's say you can solve K-anonymity and do public health care data related to like people who have you know had trouble during the pandemic or something like that. Yeah. Like You could do something really shocking, yeah, yeah. draw a lot of attention, draw a lot of media. Maybe that would be a better approach. Could be. And, but uh, it's not safer. Yeah, right? it, yeah, it, it could be. And, and, it's risky. And, and that's actually what we actually looked at that when we we're first starting the company was actually data about healthcare. And I was involved in a, in a, a I'm involved in a company called DataVant, which is kind of like a middleware for healthcare data. And I think that's a really great thing. You get when, when you're when you're starting a company, when you're like two, three people, and you're first starting a company, and even if you're a hundred people as a company, which is what SafeGraph is today, we're about roughly about a hundred people. You know, you can't do that many things. So if you're trying to do very many things, you're you're very likely not to win in any of them. So you have to pick a very, very small number of things that you're going to do well. And there's going to be, that means there's just lots of things that you want to do that you can't do. And there's many, many things you'll never, ever get to do. And you have to be okay with that. And that's true in life too. Like, you know, I, I always had this idea that I was going to write a novel. Yes. One day. I remember this. You remember this. Okay. So yeah, you don't, you don't, you know, you have to, you have to be okay with just deciding you're not going to do it. Ghostwriting has gotten really good. You're right. Maybe maybe you'll change your mind. Maybe I'll change my mind. But you have to be okay with basically not not pursuing every single thing. You don't have you don't have enough time in your entire life to pursue every dream. If you ever want to publish a book through Software Daily, written by or without a ghostwriter, uh, fully paid. All you have to do is send me an email. All right, awesome. It's okay, a, it's a standing invitation. Okay, I'm going to publish, but it's going to be the it napkin can be, graph. It can be the napkin graph coffee okay. table. Book. All right, let's do the it. Napkin graph coffee table book by Orrin Hoffman and published Software by Daily. published by Software Daily. Now, do you want them like blown up so much that they're pixelated so that it's like a big coffee table book? Yeah, I want a nice coffee table book. Yes, you can. But like, with pixelated napkin graphs. No, it doesn't have to be pixelated. Or well designed it look napkin like graphs. this. You know, it could, it could be the actual. Do you want to like size. outsource them to artists and have the artists like redo them? With no, like really, no, really no. Napkin. I want them to look raw. Yeah, raw with my my terrible handwriting and everything like that. Yeah, absolutely. And every you know every so what, yeah. Well, let's publish this book together. Okay, we already have this idea. Every single every single subscriber to Software Engineering Daily will buy it for their parents for for the holidays. It'll be a big seller. We'll make billions of dollars. You can keep your share, and I'll give I'll give my share to charity. So it'll be a great, really fun uh, project. I really want people to know how much value you've gotten from your writing over the years. I've gotten oh, awesome. just a Thank tremendous you. amount of oh, value. So nice, like from your content, from your podcast. All the various things I've gotten a lot of value out of it, and so I uh, I actually got you like some groceries. Oh, all right. As a gift. Oh, okay. You can uh, holy you can either, like, Take a look at them. Okay. On Whoa. air or okay. off air, they're just wow. a, you know collection of things that okay. are as they're representative of the heterogeneity of ideas that okay. that you've given me. Oh wow! So Thank you, you know, it's a gift. Good. I appreciate um, it. Whoa! I've got a booster shot. I didn't even need to have one of these today. Okay, this is good stuff. Okay. Wow. It's a magic card. Oh, Magic the Gathering. Okay. So you is, still haven't played that game, I right? I still have not played Magic okay. the Gathering. I'm waiting for my kids 
to get into it. We've been playing some Pokemon, which is kind of similar, I think, right? Has some similarities, which has been which has been fun. But I really want to get into Magic the Gathering really bad. And I've just been like, I've been just waiting. I think my kids might need to be like one year older before we're like ready to really, really dive in. Can I give you a brief history of Magic the Gathering? Yeah. Okay. Magic the Gathering, if I have this right, started in 1993 by Richard Garfield. Richard Garfield is an expert in computational complexity theory. So he's essentially a guy who has studied what makes situations complex. And that's why he was able to make the best game in history. You think Magic Gathering is the best game in history? It's not even a conversation. Not, okay, all right. Well, now I, mean, I except, really need to play it. Except for Supercompute. Okay. Oh, Supercompute. I don't know Supercompute. That's the game company I'm starting. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. Got it. Okay. The product sh- probably will be out by the time this airs. The okay, first awesome. All right. I'll, I'll try to get um, that too. It will too. be the best game you've ever played. Okay. Maybe not initially, but eventually. Okay. So, started in 1993 by Richard Garfield. He's a computer science genius. They play tested the game in cardboard. They like drew out the cards on cardboard so that they could test it. Yeah. Once they knew they had a good game, they got it printed. The company was called Wizards of the Coast. Wizards of the Coast makes Magic the Gathering. In 1999, Wizards of the Coast was acquired by Hasbro. Hasbro, as you know, is a toy company. Yeah. Toy companies are great. Toy companies don't know how to make software. So there was a chasm that every games company had to cross into digital. And Wizards of the Coast fell down the chasm because they're owned by Hasbro. Got So they, they, they had a great card game, but they weren't able to make a digital game. So they made a digital game. It's actually pretty good. It's yeah. called Magic Online Digital Objects. Apparently the story is, the, and I think it was originally made in 2002. And I think that it was originally made by this company called Leaping Lizard, which was a contractor that apparently they somehow entered into a conversation with Wizards of the Coast slash Hasbro. Essentially, they were dared by Wizards of the Coast that they could... They, they, Wizards of the Coast said, okay, look, if you can actually make this into... Because it's a very complicated game with a lot of rules. Yeah. And Wizards of the Coast essentially asserted that this was not possible to do in software. Leaping Lizard proved them wrong, except it was like Leaping Lizard, a random software company. So they made it work, but it's not great software. And then that became Magic Online Digital Objects. That's like the lineage of that game. So they've got a whole lot of technical debt in got that it. product. Okay. It's still only on Windows. It's not on Apple. And this like, is why can't someone just buy the Magic the Gathering from Hasbro, like some smart group of people, and then like create like because create it's, it to an because it's the, thing. because it's a crown jewel in a publicly owned company. Okay, is it, is it a very profitable? It's, it's a crown okay. jewel. It's a crown jewel and. I mean, so Magic Online Digital Objects is a great game. It's like a, actually become a very, very good game, but it's a monolithic .NET application that only runs on Windows. And so the solution to this, apparently, according to Wizards of the Coast slash Hasbro, is to make a brand new digital game experience called Magic the Gathering Arena. The secondary economy, first of all, the secondary economy in Magic is super important. You open up these booster packs, it's like random lottery tickets. Yeah. It's like legal gambling, basically. Yeah. This is another problem with the game is essentially it's legal gambling for children. Yeah. So it's casinos for children. Yeah. That's what Magic the Gathering yeah, is. Yeah, I, that's, I don't see that as a problem. I see that as a feature. Yeah. We could go very deep. I mean, do you okay. want your kids playing No Limit Hold'em for thousands of dollars? Uh, Maybe. I don't Not for maybe. thousands of dollars. Maybe. But yeah, for thousands of pennies, maybe. Maybe? Yeah. yeah. I mean, would you be okay with a 
like the Roblox, let's say somebody made Magic, let's say somebody made No Limit Hold'em in Roblox, because Roblox yeah. is a platform for making games, right? Yeah, yeah. Let's yeah. say somebody made No Limit Hold'em for Roblox, your kids can only lose up to $100 per day. Is that, that something you want in the world? No, that might not be something I want. Yeah. Maybe, yeah, maybe yeah, not. Yeah. Is yeah. there a way to regulate that today? Yeah. Unclear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, so back to... Um, so what was, so the Mt. Gox stuff, right, was the original, like, it was originally like some sort, it was for the secondary economy originally, right, yes. before it moved to a Bitcoin. Yes. Thing. It was, and that was the genesis, this kind of like Tokyo exchange for Magic the Gathering cards. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Secondary market built, I believe, on top of the, on top of the in, so Magic the, Magic the Gathering online digital objects client yeah. has a built-in like secondary economy system, but it's just encased in this terrible software, this terrible .NET application. That's yeah. that's not just it's just not good, not a good software experience. Now, what? Why is like so? It's like on this thing it says thirteen plus. Okay, I play a lot of games. My kids are not yet thirteen. They're not not. And you know, we play a lot of my my, my kids play a lot of games. So we play a lot of Settlers of Catan, and you know, we put we play a lot of other games. And most of those, let's say, I'd say you know, they might say ten plus or eleven plus or something. And even though my kids might be younger than that, they can play that. But why is it so complicated? It says thirteen plus. You, you rarely see a game at thirteen plus. The game has some design problems. Uh, that's one of the reasons. But I think the true reason for the thirteen plus rating is that the earliest iterations of the game had some violence and occult symbolism ah uh, so there's some violence in there okay. and also the game originally had a patina of gambling because there was this anti feature originally magic was played for anti they're, they're in the anti? early anti like okay. literally you sit down with your deck your opponent sits down with their deck and you anti the top card and you just play for it Sometimes, uh, sometimes you flip an expensive card sometimes they flip an inexpensive card oh, it's pretty fun okay it's pretty fun it's not as fun as like tournament magic for cash, which yeah. is very fun, but also low stakes. Strangely, it's like the most cerebral best game in the world and it's only played for low stakes. It's a better game than poker and it's played for significantly lower stakes. Anyway, so the thing that really just irritates me, this game is essentially my religion. Like I grew up with this game. Now, what what how how much like in some games, how much of luck is a factor? Like if you have someone like if Roger Federer pay, plays me in tennis, like he's a hundred percent chance going to win, right? If I play a grandmaster in chess, they're hundred percent going to win. But if I play Settlers of Catan, you know, I have to say I'm a mid-level player in Settlers of Catan. If I play even the best players, I, I still have a pretty decent chance of winning in, in Settlers of Catan. And Baton. that's a good feature. Yeah, which which is great. That's why I love playing with my kids is like they, they can beat me um, legitimately. I don't right. have to play down. Like they can legitimately beat me and it's really, it's, it's a really, it's a really fun. Like, well, how does that work with Magic the Gathering? So you want that feature, but what you want to avoid is the de degenerate scenarios where you can know, let's say I sit down. I'm playing against you. I do what's called a mulligan. A mulligan is where your hand has the incorrect distribution of card types. So basically, every every opening hand you have, you need to have a you need to have a proportional distribution between what's called lands and spells. Okay. Lands are your resources. Spells are the things that you're doing with the resources. If you get a resource imbalance, it's like you just can't win. Yeah. So if you the way that they fix this is if you get a seven card hand with a you resource just, like, imbalance, re, you shuffle, you shuffle out. it back in, but you draw six cards. Okay, got so it. So then you, so you, so I start with six cards. You start with seven. Yep, got it. They've done calculations, or they've done, they've run some data. So I've heard. I don't know if I trust this data. Maybe Safegraph can solve this. Yeah, we're going to be selling data on Magic: The Gathering in the future. Yeah, this is a on new product Mulligan's, coming out. Mulligan yeah. statistics. Yeah. 
So apparently if you mulligan, on average, you lose 23% of the time more. Yeah. So okay, you basically- it. So it's not too bad. Yeah. Well, but it's problematic because the problem is in those scenarios, you often mulligan to six cards. The six cards are marginal. Yeah. So imagine a situation where you start with seven cards. They're great. I start with six cards. They're marginal. We're going to sit down and we're going to play for 15 minutes. I'm going to have a horrible experience. Uh, You're going to smash my face. A typical Magic Gathering game is 15 minutes or? Five to 30 minutes. Okay, that's great. That's also good too. Depending on the format. Then you just play another game. Yeah, and occasionally it takes like two hours for a game. Okay. Very rarely you're like, why is this game still going? Okay. It's really fun. But that's a problematic scenario where I am sitting here and I know I'm going to spend the next 10 to 15 minutes losing to you. Yep. It's going to take you 10 to 15 minutes to like, you know, kill me. And I'm just sitting there the whole and time. And how much have you spent on Magic the Gathering cards in the money? last... Yeah, like just, um, just buying decks. I mean, I've made money. And... I've made money in Magic over okay, the years. Okay, got because Because you're betting and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, I was playing in tournaments. I was like buying and selling cards. I was just hustling. Okay. Pretty got much. It. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds um, fun. Okay. I, it's I, really I, fun. I, I want to anyway, play. I, I just, I'm aware I, I might get addicted to it. I just need you to know, I just need you to know how frustrating this company, this product, this... Imagine if somebody acquired your religion and then just managed it into the ground. That's what has happened. And I just I, I say that with all love and due respect to the to the organizations involved. It's just they're making Stranger Things cards now. So they're they're literally taking the brand and using it to promote Stranger Things, which is fine, I guess. Yeah. Like I don't know. Is do you want Christmas brought to you by SafeGraph? Like maybe. Probably not. Yeah, Probably well, it was like, brought originally by Coca Cola, right? So yeah. What? Yeah. That was though that the Coca Cola was good at like really making Christmas Christmas. I didn't know that. Yeah, Santa Claus. They they you know they helped help create like the modern day. And I mean, I hope, hope no young kids are listening to this. Yeah. So yeah. Anyway, so the thing that really frustrated me was that they basically made the second game, Magic the Gathering Arena, and the cards that you own in Magic the Gathering digital objects, the first game that they made, do not transfer over. So imagine basically uh, somebody has it. forked the economy and they said, you don't get the rights to the money that you already made. Uh, got it. So you have all these valuable digital assets and you can't, you can't move them over. I don't even own any digital objects. It, this was just frustrating to me as like, yeah. as basically like we can't solve this. Like they can't figure out how to solve, how to, they can't figure out how to port their billion dollar business line to Apple. Yeah. It's, it's a software problem. It's a database problem. Like this is not hard. Yeah. Call in the consultants. Well, what are the, things that in general digital assets is that it is in many cases very very hard to have a secondary economy in digital assets so like i just bought a new car and an old car yeah i've seen the blog post selling you know selling the i'm selling the old car it's actually great you get to sell it someone can buy it you know whatever the market is there's some sort of clearing price and you know i haven't sold it yet but i, but I feel confident we'll sell the old car but I have all these like old Kindle books that like I'm not going to read anymore. I have no way of like selling my or old movies I bought on iTunes or, you know, whatever it might be. I have no way of selling these things to somebody who might actually really benefit from them and like them. And so I think it is always often hard when, um, you know, some sort of there's usually some sort of central authority that controls these digital assets and creates some sort of rules around them. And so even though that Kindle book you know, if you think of like a paperback, maybe cost you twelve dollars to buy. The Kindle book maybe cost you ten dollars to buy, but the paperback at least you can resell. Let's say for four dollars, whereas the Kindle you may have like zero chance of reselling. Not only do you have zero chance of reselling, you can't even really gift it to somebody. So at least in the paperback, you can give it to a buddy. Say, hey, you can, hey, you really, I love this book. You you will benefit from this book. Go check it out. The Kindle much much more difficult 
to to go do that or an audible kind of book or you know whatever what is much more difficult to to gift to a friend or something or so so i i think these digital things are are hard to like think through and it would be really great if they're like secondary economies for them even things that aren't necessarily digital are, are sometimes hard like like plane tickets I think airlines would make way more money if there was a secondary economy for plane tickets. Because first of all, they could charge a lot. I would pay a lot more for a plane ticket if I knew I could resell that ticket and I didn't have to deal with like the the plane company of having, if there was just like a simple secondary market for me to move those tickets around or something. And so you have all these other types of things. And I think certainly that the events companies, once StubHub actually became much more legit, they actually end up making more money with the advent of StubHub because people were willing to pay a lot more because they knew it was easy to, even if they were going to take a loss on it, it was easy to move that ticket again. Whereas before in the old days, I used to, I used to buy and sell tickets when I was in high school and, you know, for like U2 concerts and stuff like that. Was it U2 concerts? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Or Guns N' Roses or, you know, all these different concerts. You go to concerts? To, I would go too, but yeah, I would, you know, I would, I would, I would like buy, buy, ticket. buy four tickets buy four and sell three or something like that. It was the best and, and concert I would, you I would in high school. Guns N' Roses was really good. Madison mm-hmm. Square Garden, Guns N' Roses. Mm-hmm. Oh my god! You gosh. grew up in New York. Yeah, I grew up oh, in. Right. Uh, I grew up in the suburbs. Yeah. Okay. So that that was like an amazing. Soundgarden opened for them. Mm-hmm. Incredible, incredible, incredible. It's like two different eras, right? Oh, Soundgarden's yeah. a very different era from Guns N' Roses. Yeah, di- but 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 I mean, but it similar. Was, it was awesome. Yeah, it was it was awesome. Did you ever go to Half Price Books? You ever been to Half Price Books? Do you know that store? Have you ever heard of that? I don't think so. So it's like a great place where you can buy used books, and you can also just take all your books there and give it. To them, yeah. and they give you like a check. Yeah, so you just bring in your books oh, yeah. into the back, and they just give you a check, and then you can take it. To There's the front a place like that books. in San Francisco. I don't even know if it's still around. It's called Green Apple Books on Clement Street. It is Francisco. around. Okay. It is around. Yeah. In fact, I passed by it the other day. So I used to always do that. I would take all my books to Green Apple Books. They'd give me, you know, most of them. They would they would give me a check for zero. They say, I, I don't this know, is in I mean, college. Yeah, uh, no, no, uh, post college. But but let's say I was in my early twenties. I would bring like. 30 books Hadn't there. Like sold a business by then? Uh, well, you know, I was still, I'm, I'm a frugal guy. And then they would give me credit and they would also be really knowledgeable. So they would often say, they would, by, you know, I, I would go there all the time. You know, for a while, I was going there for a while, like every week sometimes. And often I would sell books back to them that I bought from them. And then they were very knowledgeable and they would be able to suggest different books that I could buy. Really? Uh, yeah, it was great. Wow. Uh, so, it was, you know, this was a, maybe a different era, and the, but but it was a it was a really great place. And sometimes I'd just sit there and just like, yeah, and just, just read through, a book. Just yeah, stuff. I'd read like a couple chapters of a book, just like sitting on the on the floor There's and so put many it back books. in the shelf. There's so many books. Yeah. Yeah. And that that's a, one of the great things about which is different from, I think, today, is this idea of, like, browsing is a weird kind of concept. And so today, I don't really browse. I don't actually go into most physical stores, even, like, whether it's a grocery store or whatever. And so, but back in the day, I used to browse, and I used to spend a lot of time in bookstores, just, like, going through and just, like, I would read a chapter. I'd sit down on the ground and just read a chapter, and then I'd just put it back. And then I would, like, oh, this looks... And just by, like, the cover of the book or the title, just completely random. And I I used to, like... you know, this is pre-kids. I used to spend every either every Saturday or every Sunday just reading. I would I would spend probably eight hours just reading. And often I would just do it in my home or at a park or something like that. But sometimes I'd like walk into a bookstore, especially if I was in a new city or something. I love just going to a random bookstore and just opening up some random book. And some of the best books I've ever read in my life were just like random books I found. And sometimes like sometimes they were books that were on sale for like a dollar. 
and you would just go through and read them. And some of when them you say really when you say books you've read, does that mean books that you've completed or just books that you've read a page from? I mean, in my case, I, I would say like the, the the transformative books would be books I completed because if it was a good book, I probably completed it. And so uh, a lot of a lot of great books I've I've read a you know, read a chapter or two here and there. But most of these books, you know, a lot of times I'd end up buying it. And then I don't think I could ever finish a book at the bookstore. So I'd, you know, maybe start it there. And then, oh, this is good. I want to keep it. I don't go go buy the book. And it's kind of a try before you buy things. It's really great. And then take it home or take it to the park or whatever and, and just kind of, or, or take it to a pizza place and just kind of go through it. Have there been any books of that caliber that have been written about the last 15 to 18 months? As in COVID, like the COVID experience. Yeah, well, there's a new one by Neil Ferguson. I haven't read it yet. I have it, own it. I own the book, and I'm planning on reading it. That that kind of like talks about not only this this experience, but you know, Neil is a, is an amazing historian, and so then he goes through all these other different pandemics that we've had over the year. We've had one in the 50s. Obviously, we had a famous one in the 20s, and kind of went through the different pandemics and 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 tries to understand like from historical. He 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 builds okay what's similar about other pandemics, what's different, um, et cetera. And I've kind of like I've talked to him about it, read summaries of the book, but I haven't yet read the book in full. I'm planning I'm planning on doing that in the next couple of months. Are there any other pandemics in history with this much political intrigue? Well, I, I think most pandemics caused intrigue. So if you know if if you go all the way back to the Black Death or something like that, like it caused a lot of. Um, intrigue or the conquistadors bringing smallpox to the to Latin America obviously you know really changed and, and altered the political landscape for hundreds of years so I do think pandemics do do make a lot of whenever you have big change in the world um, obviously that is is almost always accompanied by some sort of political change do you have any predictions for big political changes things that are non-taboo non-taboo political changes maybe preferences in restaurants as seen by SafeGraph data. Oh, well, I think society is always changing, which is great. I mean, one of the great, it's always, it's always And nice can you to, see it? Can you see it in real time through SafeGraph data? Can you see societal changes? So one of the great things that we did in, when we're in the start of COVID is we started this SafeGraph community. I think we now have um, about 10,000 academics that are very, very active. And we have a lot of non-academics too that are very, very active in the SafeGraph community. We've had hundreds of- Mostly through Slack, is it a Slack channel or Yeah, what? we have a Slack channel. Yep. Um, so you can, yeah, anyone go, it's free. The, the Slack channel itself is free. You can just go to the SafeGraph community. Have you Slack huddles yet, by the way? Uh, Slack huddles, these like audio things? I, I haven't done those oh yet. Oh my God, they're them? so good. Okay, so cool. uh, Clubhouse is like kind of okay. Yeah. Slack huddles are amazing. Okay. I'll check them out. It's I I'm I've seen the feature. It looks I'm cool. enjoying it more than podcasts actually because okay. it's just you get in a conversation with all the people that you want to hang out with anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's cool. Yeah, anyway, so, sorry. So the community. yeah, so we have this like community of of all these different researchers, hundreds and hundreds of of published academic papers. And so you have some of the smartest people in the world that are that are that are using our data to to uh, learn about like what's going on because you have society. some free free deal for academics, right? That's right. That's right. So if you're if you're an academic, we'll basically give you free data. What constitutes an academic, by the way? You know, let's say someone in a a PhD program at a well known university or We're something about like kid that. Kid in India. You know, so not yet. So, but but ideally, we'll have something like that for for maybe somebody like that. They have to be part of an academic institution. They have to sign certain agreements, et cetera. And so, we have a list of you know maybe a couple thousand institutions that you need to be part of um, that that are that are relevant, um, et cetera, today. And and hopefully, we can democratize that more over time. But it's just it's just been incredible. And then they have their own lens. And then, of course, 
like any data, data is only part of a solution. So, you know, you, you probably heard my analogy. Like I used to, I like to think of SafeGraph data as like, is an ingredient. So we sell like, let's say high quality butter to pastry chefs. And those pastry chefs take our high quality butter and they take many, many other ingredients. And then they make this like amazing croissant. And then of course, like the end consumer of that, of that innovation, that croissant may not even know there's butter in it. They certainly don't know there's safe craft butter in it, right? But the chef knows how important that ingredient is. But again, there's many, many ingredients that go in. So if you think of these academic papers, okay, we, we're an important ingredient, but there's so many other ingredients. And then of course, it's their own ingenuity and all the different things that they have and their own experiences with this particular, like the South side of Chicago or whatever, they have this amazing experience there. And then they're able to create less, less like, really great data or real sorry, really great innovation, really great paper. And again, we're just one of many, many ingredients that go into this incredible innovation. So I really like uh, the company Palantir and they published, there was one article that was written about this company that I thought was revealing. It's a pretty shadowy company. There's really not much known about it. But the thing that I really like that they said publicly, I think the CEO said this, is that they try to Basically, they see surveillance as this really, really big potential problem. And so they try to alleviate the problem by defining the cutting edge of it. And I feel like that's true of a lot of newer technology where it really takes a person with an up-close view of what's going on in technology to understand how dangerous some of this stuff is, like or potentially dangerous, basically to self-regulate. Do you have any perspectives on like, how we get to a place of sensible regulation around modern technology, like a place where we can move beyond where like senators are asking Mark Zuckerberg about his subscription service. Like how do we get real conversation about like actual software related, like why are we just like not having real conversations about technology and like its impact on the world? It's like not in the level that it should be had. Like what was so special about Quora back in the day, right? We we had these like really in-depth conversations where people were taking topics very seriously. I mean, I, I push back a little bit. I I think those conversations are happening. They're happening. Yeah. I mean, they're not, you you have, but not in a public forum, not on stage. Well, I don't think any good conversations happen in public forums really. I mean, because, you know, if you're starting to have a conversation you need to you need to be a bit vulnerable and you need to potentially you need to be playing with ideas and playing with ideas in a public forum is incredibly dangerous so you need to be playing with ideas with a group of people that you know have have positive assume positive intent of you and are you know know that you're a good person and you're trying to you know get to the right place and you're 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 still in the ideas playing stage you're you're in the learning stage you're asking dumb questions right imagine like you know uh, imagine the ridicule that you get in public if you ask a, a stupid question or something so i think these things happen outside of the public realm and i, I think i think one of the the unfortunate things is that the public realm is pervading everywhere and so if you you know if you you know now if you ever go to like a listen to a panel at a conference like it's never it's never interesting in fact if you if you talk to a pr person and the pr person is like prepping you to go to the panel they will specifically this is, tell by the you, way clubhouse versus huddles huddles are private yeah, right? exactly. They're not recorded. Yeah. They're not public. Yeah, exactly. Clubhouse is a, it, I love Clubhouse, but it's a little bit uninteresting because everybody's performing. Yeah. In yeah. a very straightforward way. Yeah, that that's probably right. I I I haven't spent that much time on Clubhouse, but you know, if you're on a panel, the, your PR person will say, "Don't be interesting." They'll specific they'll say, "Sound smart. It's important to sound smart, but not interesting." 
And so anytime you ever see somebody- Has somebody told you that before? Oh, every PR person tells you that. That is is the first thing that they'll tell someone who's like smart and who's ever tried to be interesting before. They'll say, don't try to be interesting because if you try to be interesting, there's an extremely high likelihood that you're going to say something you regret or something that could take taken out of context or whatever. So if they're like, if they're, let's say a PR person is managing a, a CEO or they're managing a senator or whatever it might be, they'll just say, sound smart. It's important sounds, you don't want to sound stupid. So sound smart, you know, say something that you've said before, ideally. And here's here's the notes, here's here's the things that are safe to say. And that's what everyone everyone tries to do. I, I think it's very, very risky for people to try to be interesting in public. Now, eventually they can say something that is interesting after they've they've developed it with a small group of trusted people, et cetera. But I think one of the problems in the world is that many people have a small group of people that they that they work on something like this with, but those small group of people tend to be very similar to them, right? Because they tend to be like their super close friends that are going to assume positive intent. And so they're not necessarily pushing them on the idea or helping them work through that idea in the right way. And I've certainly been lucky and other people I'm sure have been lucky to find a group of friends or a group of, you know, a group of people to work with that have very, very diverse views on things and very, very diverse backgrounds. And that that's super, super helpful, but also I think super rare that you can have this kind of, let's say, off the record conversation with groups of people like, you know, if you're um libertarian, like Bitcoin enthusiast and you're in a little libertarian Bitcoin Slack group, yeah, you can have these like interesting conversations on the margin with folks, but you you may have like very, very, very similar worldviews. Again, it can help you sharpen your view and understanding and they could push you and help you. But if you have people with very, very different views, but still assume positive intent, which is kind of the the core thing that could really help you take to the next level of of how you're thinking about it, or they can give you a really good straw man on okay, this is this have you actually thought about this or right, like that? I like it. But without without arguing because sometimes arguing that doesn't that's not productive or just trying to score points. It's more like, okay, I'm going to help you get your views better. I'm going to help you think about it in a different way, uh, et cetera. You know what's a good example of this is, speaking of crypto, cryptocurrencies were conceived not only to allow people to have decentralized free speech with regard to money, it was also about having low cost or zero cost payments and i feel like the entire crypto ecosystem has lost that message it's become all entirely about this decentralization free speech thing it is no longer about building just simply building a low cost financial system i mean do you have any understand have you looked at fintech at all do you have any understanding of what why things just don't get cheaper over time well i i think they're they're starting to so if you're if you're a, if you're an average consumer in America of like there's starting to be all these new fintech banks which charge like you know very much lower fees or maybe zero fees whereas before like just like being able to have like a ch- operating a checking account at a more traditional bank may have been very very expensive for people that didn't have you know x dollars in the bank or they you know they don't charge overdraft fees you, you have these other types of things so like I, I would say for certain types of class of people obviously it's a lot cheaper to to, to, to borrow money today than it was 10 years ago um, so all these different um, solutions have been there if you think of like you know trading stocks it's cheaper so th- there's definitely a lot of costs that are coming down and you know if 
you think of ETFs and you know the, the Vanguard revolution, right? So it's it's cheaper to to buy and hold things, and, and so I, I think these things are are have been incredibly good. The pay, payments is more is difficult, and so but I, I think slowly over time you'll start to see that. One one of the great things about crypto is I, I think you have these two just extraordinary people in crypto. That and I think part of the reason of the success is basically about these two extraordinary people. So first of all, you have Satoshi, right? We don't know whether it's him or her, a group of people, or we don't know anything necessarily about who this person is. But this is a kind of a mythical person, and the fact that it is a mythical person is is like you know this person can't like go cheat on their spouse or or something because you know this before we know this person is dead right we don't know who this is and so we can ascribe like all this goodness to this person without just like you know most humans have lots of bad qualities without seeing the bad qualities of that and so a part of the reason i think bitcoin's success is this like satoshi character that's out there that is, is kind of like the deity of crypto. And we can all believe in this, in this, in this, in this deity um, without all the bad things that often come with, with humans. And then you then you have in in the new in the Ethereum world, you have this Vitalik character. And he is, is is just weirdly a good person. And so he just doesn't have as many but is he deistic? Is he semi-deistic? I think he's semi. Yeah, he would be a semi. He'd be a, like a like a semi-god or something like that, right? And so, you know, he's just weirdly a, just a, at least for everything I've read about him and you know everything I've seen about him, he just seems like a genuinely good person who's trying to do the right thing. I'm sure he makes mistakes all the time, but he doesn't have the human. He doesn't have as many of the human foibles as as most humans, as the rest of us. So even though he is a real person and you, you, you could meet him and touch him and get to know him and, and, and I'm sure he'll make some terrible mistakes and, and do, you know, like all humans do, he is weirdly incredibly good. And so and much more so than almost any other person involved in tech, right? If you, 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 it's really hard to think of anyone else who's anywhere, anywhere at that level. And so it, it allows you to ascribe some sort of trust in, um, so you have this trust in Bitcoin because of the Satoshi character. You have a trust in in Ethereum because of the Vitalik character. And this is the way these things can really start to get going. This is why I'm very long on the on those two platforms because you in these two platforms are very very. They're, they're not just about like the technical ability or you know there is like a core trust in, in a belief in in this system going forward. It, it's a bit of a religion, right? And so you you need to in in any type of religion you you there's usually some sort of core figure in that religion. And it's very important to have a high belief in that core figure. So you're telling me that a factionalized religion that's led by an anonymous deity and a non-anonymous semi-deity is a healthy situation. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. As long as you believe in that, as long as you believe in that, right? And so if you, you know, if you were like, if you were in like the Soviet Union in the 30s, like, yes, there's Stalin that's out there, but like nobody really thought he was a good person. No one even in the Soviet Union at the time thought he was a good person. Like there were some people in America who were crazy who thought he was a good person, but basically there was no one who lived in the Soviet Union actually. So so you just like no one really believed in the system that was in the system. 
So like it was, it was like communism was always this like fraught religion where like everyone in the system never believed in the system because the the deities were always bad. They were kind of bad people who were kind of running the the systems. And so you you it's important in in any type of like religious experience that you especially if it's like a more centralized one. And weirdly, even though like Bitcoin is decentralized, also like centralized in this kind of like deity, right? Um, and that you have some sort of belief in the in the in the core leader, um, even if that leader is dead, right? In the core leader of the of the system. But even if we just focus on Vitalik, so you have a guy who is really good at appearing virtuous, really good at wearing tie dye t shirts and doing eccentric behavior that looks vaguely positive, still can't build a scalable payment system, still can't build a scalable smart contract system, like. At what point do we stop taking this platform seriously? Like, it's not scaling. Well, um, it's hard. And so, you know, it, it, in, in some ways, it is scaling in many, many different ways. And there's, you know, many different things that are getting built on top of it. And it's, it's exciting and interesting. And there's all these different things that are that are happening. Um, and there's, like, all these interesting innovations that are that are starting to happen. They're, they're still small, whether they're NFTs or smart contracts or, you know, whatever it is, right? It's early, but... It's exciting. Like it's, but it's, it's like, it's all red herrings, right? It's like, look at our NFTs. That's, but it's, I'm like, where's my micropayments? Why can't I pay a guy in Nigeria five cents to transcribe something? Yeah. Well, that, that isn't here yet, but, but, but you could see a world where would that's you, coming. Would you feel comfortable putting your money through a semi decentralized system? Let's say something that's decentralized at the cloud provider level. Let's say you have a blockchain that's synchronized between all the best cloud providers. Let's say you take a thousand of the best cloud providers in the world and you build a decentralized blockchain between them. Is that trusted enough to run our financial system? Well, well, whether it's decentralized or centralized, I think you can have decentralized systems that are trusted and centralized systems that are trusted or some sort of hybrid. And so I, I don't know that they're like the centralization or not is important. The centralization, it depends on who's who's doing the centralization, right? Um, and so, you know, if you're if you're in certain countries, you might not trust the the central authorities of those countries today. If you're in other in other pl- countries, you know, you may, you may have higher trust in the in the central authorities. I, I, I don't like it's like I, most of my money and like all my money is tracked by the IRS or you know whatever. Like I, I have trust in the U.S. government. I trust the central authority. Uh, but you know, maybe if I lived in another place, I would have. Uh, if I lived in Venezuela or something like that, maybe I'd have very low trust in the central authority, and uh, some sort of decentralized uh, monetary system would be more appealing to me. All right, rank. The following three planned economies. Xi Jinping's planned economy, or call it the China planned economy, Vitalik Buterin planned economy, or the Collison planned economy. I don't think I know enough to rank any of those. All right, three. describe yeah. the planned economy. I don't know if I know enough to <laughs> even describe any of those three planned economies. Would you prefer? I'm a, I, you know, I, you know my, my day job is SafeGraph. That's what I spend most of All my right. time on. So All right, I, describe I the SafeGraph planned economy. Well, I don't know if there's like a planned economy, but I... If we could live in a, in a planned economy designed by SafeGraph, if we had to live in a planned economy designed by SafeGraph... Well, I, I do think that we We've lost be, all our yeah, leaders. I, I do think we should be living in a world where, where facts are more central. Um, and, so, and so, you know, if you, if you think of like... The, you ever read like the Foundation series or something? I haven't. Okay. It's a good series. I, I'd recommend it. Is there it. a movie? Uh, there's going to be a movie, I think, uh, coming out. I heard, I heard that there's going to be a movie. So one of the premises is, 
of the series is that is that you you, you having these facts kind of collected in some sort of uh, place like an encyclopedia or something like that is is very very important for societies to go to to move forward and 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 I, I would like to see a more I, I'd say you know there there is importance in opinion and understanding and interpreting and etc. But I, I think we've moved too much in the world to to that and less of the world of actually just like determining that this is a true statement, this is a true fact. So I, I, I you, there's a pendulum. You could always swing too far one way or the other. But I would like to see a world where we revere those that are trying to hold the facts. And in some ways, like if you think of like the archivist at the Library of Congress or something like that, like they're trying to preserve things, they're trying to preserve the facts or something like that. I have a, I have a real reverence for those people that were or the librarian or something like that. Like I have a real reverence for those types of people. They're not actually- Or the, the used bookstore operators. Yeah, they're, used, yeah. They're, they're, they're not the innovator- themselves they're not the author they're not they're not the creator but they're kind of the maintainer and they're they're the kind of these unsung heroes that are incredibly important and the foundation series is filled with some of these folks as well librarians yeah exactly they're kind of filled with these types of unsung heroes and and they're they're very important to maintaining culture they're very important to 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 things and and that's the way we we started safecraft we're not there's some humility involved in starting a company where you don't want to put yourself at the center you're there really trying to record what's happening trying to record the truth and putting out there and that's why i love wikipedia with all of its problems wikipedia obviously has tons of problems anyone go through it i just love the fact that um you know at its core mission it's trying to describe facts that are out there and trying to get those facts to everybody in the world there isn't a gate to who gets to see it or if you have a certain view you can't see the facts or whatever they're they're trying to open up to everybody and again you can use those facts for for bad you, know, you can learn about something and then use that and weaponize it. And, you know, these things can be weaponized. But I think getting that knowledge out there is is, is still more good than bad. And it's, you know, it's, it's essentially a really good thing for the world. All right, let's do a six-minute World of DAS interlude. So you get to host a mini six-minute episode of World of DAS with me as your guest. Pretend I'm a data vendor. Well, so one of the things I like, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on podcasts. So, I mean, I, I have never done a podcast without massive prep. So I write all my questions ahead of time. I send all the questions to the guests as I'm I just like really deep. I'm editing and I'm spending a lot of time. I have a producer. Wait, you do the audio editing? No, 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 the, edit, the editing oh, yeah, the, the questions, questions. Got editing the questions. Like I, I have our producer and she and I work on the questions for a long time. We usually try to send it to the guests often a week before the show. So they have a chance to go through it, go back and forth on the, you know, and, um, and really trying to like learn about like, so, and it's been like a lot of time just trying to think like, what do I really want to know about this business or about this other types of things? And I don't think I could do a World of Jazz episode with you because I haven't spent like the many weeks leading up to this interview, thinking about your business or thinking about like what I want to know from from you. And I think there's different types of people that are out there. There's like the, um, you know, people that are reacting different types of time. And there's like these like super like witty, like fast on their feet, you know, like someone, let's say in the British parliament or something like that, they're funny and they're very quick with the quip, right? That's not me at all. Like I need to be, uh, you know, I don't need to spend months on something, but I often need to spend like hours kind of on something, like thinking it through, getting to a point. I can make a decision relatively quickly, 
you know, I don't, I don't need days to make a decision or something like that. But I'm not the one who's like coming up with like the smart, cool answer, like right off the bat or something like that. I'm not super quick on my feet. So first five years of software engineering daily, I did at least a page and a half of prep before every interview. You remember my stacks of paper that I would always come to interviews with. I'd have three to four pages of paper. Yeah. For, for you, it was three to four pages. Yeah. For the awesome. average person, it's one and a half pages. Yep. You answer questions probably 60%, in 60% of the time that most people answer questions. So you have a 40% <laughs> like condensation function, okay, um, which is great. More people should have that. But the reason I stopped doing it is because I, I found this algorithm that I like to use. And basically the algorithm is instead of like having this piece of paper in front of you, which is like your storage, this is like your database. Like yeah. basically you're coming with a database prepared. Yep. And every time that you want to ask a question, you have to access the database and it takes you all the time that it would take to access the database, which is yep. actually like fairly time consuming. Rather than that, you only keep one variable in your head and it's just in your head. So it's at memory access speed. It's like yeah. random access memory. The one variable is like X equals the best question that you can ask this person in this given span of time. Yeah, yeah. It's just the best question. That's yeah. all you keep. You're constantly updating it. So whenever the person's talking, you're you're just constantly running what There's they're no saying. There's no way I could do that. Like, I, I love that about you, and I, I think that's amazing. And I've, I've definitely, like, heard many I've, – I've, I've followed a lot of different interviewers that are good at those types of things, like – that's just no, – I, I, I would not – I would fail at that particular – You think so? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but isn't it basically like you always have at least one thought at the forefront of your mind, right? So it's basically like what is the thought that is at the forefront of your mind phrased as a question? Yeah, and my guess is like 70% of those might not be that good. Or, or, or even you, know. you just make a statement or you just pause. If you have nothing to say, you just pause and eventually they'll say something. And you can edit the pause. Yep. We're just gonna go on the pause here, right? <laughs> and you said something. <laughs> totally, totally. I felt uncomfortable. Exactly. Yeah. And the listener yeah. feels uncomfortable too, but it catches their attention. Yeah. That to me is modern podcasting. Yeah. You can't do scripted anymore. If you do scripted, nobody will pay attention. That that might be true. Maybe that's why your audience of uh, of software engineering daily is so much bigger than the world of DAS audience. Yeah. Not for long. Yeah. The other thing you could do and I think I encourage you to do this a little bit, but I really think this would be interesting is if you just interview people at SafeGraph, like talk about the business. There's so much you could talk about that that would keep you as a closed source business that would effectively be like really interesting marketing. Oh, yeah, slash I, I, I definitely, like the Inside Intercom podcast. Did you ever listen to that? No. It's like, literally what it sounds like. It's yeah. like the CEO just uh, interviewing people. We're definitely going to start doing that. Just kind of like the building in public type yeah. of thing. Yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll start doing that, at, you know, probably starting in, in 2022. Uh, we actually have the guests lined up all the way through this, the end of this year, but we'll start, we'll start doing that as well. We'll, we'll start build, building a little bit more in public and, and having a kind of a, uh, okay, here's a, here's a strategic problem that we're grappling with and making it. And I think, I think first we'll probably do a few that are just for employees only just to get our, our, our foot in the door. So just like an internal podcast, just for our own employees, um, which is kind of, I think will be a fun thing to kind of build in public, you you know, at least with with the with the you know the let's say at the time we'll have 150 people or something in the company, and then we'll once we I think find our footing we'll we'll start to release that a little bit to to the broader sense. I think that'd be really fun. It's dangerous, but I think part of the reason it's fun is that it is a little dangerous. Yeah, and I mean you get to edit it like it's not yeah live. that's right that's right it's yeah. not live yeah. What do you think about this problem of like all this basically 
unstructured podcast transcription and audio data that hasn't really been used for anything yet. Like Patrick O'Shaughnessy's trying to do something with Colossus there. There's a couple other people I've seen who have really tried to transcribe everything, like listen notes. Yeah. But you kind of can't do it. It's too expensive to transcribe everything. But it seems like there's probably a lot of like pretty good latent information that's semi-structured, but nobody's really figured out how to structure it. You think well, there's something there or is it I just mean, yeah. is it I too mean, but, unstructured? But, well, well, it's even hard to do it with just like text. So, you know, which obviously would be easier to do than podcasts because so you, you already start with the, the, the transcription. So just imagine all the different blogs that people have written and stuff like that. You know, it's incredible and interesting content that's out there. And just like, how do you structure that? How do you manage that? Like, it's actually like, like even Google can't really do a good job. And so, so it's a really hard problem. It's, it's an exciting problem. I mean, we do, we do a lot of stuff where we're trying to read text about things like, you know, again, like store hours or something like that. It could be written in many, many different formats. And, and that's a relatively structured thing, store hours. But it's like, it's, you can imagine just all the different ways of like writing down your store hours or something. And, and we have to somehow like crawl that and parse it and understand it. And it's different on every di- different website. And that's just like one very, very specific thing. Imagine if you're trying to like generalize to podcasts about sports and things about science and religion and, you know, and, you know, relationship advice. It's like, it becomes a really, really hard problem really, really, really quickly. Top three SaaS products you discovered in the last year. Oh, I think that's a, that's a hard one. Uh, I, like, be, okay, go ahead. I like Comsor. What uh, was that one? Comsor. Oh, uh, that's the uh, community thing. Yeah, community thing. Like on Did Slack you look at the options like that. for that product? The options. I mean, there's like other things that are sort of like Comsor. Or did I, you just look at Comsor and I, go with I it? I don't remember you okay. know, what we did at There's one called Orbit. Okay. Orbit.love, I think is the Okay, name. cool. I'll check it out. So it's a good... I end up loving it so much. I end up investing in Comsor. So. Nice. Can you do that with pretty much any business that you see at this point? No. I often, after I love a product, I often will call up the CEO and like... Uh, f- so first of all, they, you know, and sometimes they'll take my meeting. Sometimes they won't. I'll be like, I love your product. It's so awesome. I'm like, I just want to give you some ideas about you know what I like about it or something like that. And they're often, they're often flattered, so they're willing to take my By call. By the way, can you ever do equity trades? Can you say, I'll trade you some of SafeGraph equity for your equity in your company? Or uh, is that just not legal? It's probably legal, but it's... It's probably too hard to do because probably everyone always like overvalues awesome, their equity. Right? Wouldn't that and be stuff? the easiest thing to do if you could every time you see a product you like hey, say hey can I trade you some safe? I, I don't even know exactly how you would do it from like a tax. It's it's on it's like forget the taxes. Like, like if you, if you think about like the reason why a currency is a currency is that it's just like it's so much easier. And then it's just like I'll just put I just put money in. But that's like, a bug, not a feature. Uh, I don't think so. I actually think it's a it's a real feature. You don't want a safecraft token. I mean, but then everyone's going to value that token in a different way. Like, I do have a Safegraph token. I have equity. I have a share of Safegraph stock. Which right? would be better if it was liquid. I don't necessarily think that's true because everything is li- liquid. It's just it's very, uh, like e- even when I buy currencies, it's like well they they have they they basically when buy if you buy a cryptocurrency right they usually will put it in uh, they usually only put in two prices in dollars and in ETH right those are the only two things that you can buy a uh, token in usually they don't even put it in Bitcoin they don't even put it in like you just think of like all the other things you could put it in in Apple shares or whatever like they could tell you the price in anything but they usually tell you two things. 
there's some USD token, whatever that is, Tether or whatever. they could price it in Amazon equity. They they could price it in whatever they want, but they don't because it's too complicated. It's like you don't want to list a price in like thousands of things. But that's a UX UX problem. That's not like a currency problem. No, I, I think the dollar is a very simple conversion. Every, first of all, we, we live with the dollar. You and I live in the United States. So we know what the dollar is worth. We know what we can buy with the dollar. We know how much it takes to earn a dollar. We know how much, you know, what we, you know. So it's a, it's a very simple thing to quote everything in that in that thing. Now, just because, just, it doesn't mean these other currencies, if you just think of like the rise of real estate in Cupertino, right? Okay, the rise of real estate, real estate in Cupertino in dollars is positive. The rise of real estate in Cupertino in Apple share is negative, right? So, um, and, and that is what people are using really to buy their real estate mm. in Cupertino. They're using Apple shares. Uh, they're, not, they're not using dollars. Did right? you make this discovery on SafeGraph or did you make this discovery <laughs> otherwise? We make all our discoveries on SafeGraph. Of course. But, you you, know, you're doing pricing data too? No, not yet, okay. but one day. God, that'd um, be cool. Yeah, that'd be really cool. But you're, you're so, so, but yeah, so yeah, so, but like when like the average economist looks at the price in housing in Cupertino, they, they just look at it in dollars and it's just a simple way. And, and then, and then, okay, those prices are going up to 20% a year or something like that. They probably have some sort of understanding. Okay, well, these people probably, a lot of them work at Apple and people at Apple um, have, have become wealthy because of the appreciation of the stock price, et cetera. They're not thinking about it in all these different currencies because there's so many different currencies in our life. Every, every, once you get to a certain level of success, you're probably dealing with like, you know, dozens and sometimes more different types of currencies and just like so much easier to convert them into one or maybe two. If you, you know, let's say you live between the US and Europe or something like that, you have a small number of currencies that you're, that you're, and then ideally, even, even like if you think of like the, the euro and the dollar. Yes, they fluctuate between them, but it's like the conversion between the U.S. and dollar has been relatively stable over, you know, let's say, the last twenty years or so, and it's not like crazy fluctuation and difference. So it's always relatively easy to make that conversion. Whereas, like the relationship between Apple shares and the dollar have been like incredibly unstable over the last twenty years. And so, like, if you're just starting to quote things in Apple shares, just like even understanding the inflation of the sh- like, it just be so hard to go do. So it's nice to have a common language. It's like we, we, you and I both are speaking English right now. Like we could be, we could be, I could speak one language. You could speak a different language. We could have a translator in the middle that, but that wouldn't be like fun for the listeners to what listen to. What if there to. were subtitles? Yeah. I mean, yeah, maybe. And you could get the subtitle in your own language or something like that. But it, again, it, there would be a cost for us to actually having a real time conversation if like, unless there's like a real time subtitle. What if in real time we fade it to the background and then do like audio, uh, like the robotic yeah, audio, and, and look, as you, like the Stephen Hawking well, voice. As you, you, as you yourself were saying, doing transcriptions on the fly is really costly and really, really difficult. No, but to, we're not airing to, on the fly. To, like we have a pre-production uh, process. Well, but well, our conversation is happening on the fly. So you're saying something, I need to respond to but you. But the whole production's the, for the benefit of the listener and the benefit of the viewer. Yeah, but sure. You could, you could, you could send me a question right now in, um, and we, we could do this async and I could be at my home and then, and then I could, I could answer the yes, question and could go do back that. and we could do this over and we, it's, and it's it would like be interesting. A, a chess game. I mean, you're proving my point. Async, this would be interesting. Game. Maybe we should do that sometime. We should do that. But, and we should do it in different languages. You could go learn Thai and I'll go, I'll go, but seriously, I'll you go just, learn. You just proved um, my point because you, know, you just uh, basically made an observation that proved that if you price something in Apple shares, it can be considered from another angle, which is kind of more interesting. Well, it certainly is interesting. It's just like, it's just really good to have a common, you know, these join keys 
are so important to our life. I think they're the most underappreciated thing. So language is a join key. The dollar is a join key. The meter, like whatever, like you know, the the meter is a join key. The shared so, reality. Th- yeah, there's some sort of shared join key. And in any type of anyone who's ever dealt with databases before knows they're so important to like, and so if like Unix time, like I love Unix time. Okay. It's a super imperfect thing. It's like an integer and it started in like, you know, January 1st, like 1971 or something. And it's like, why did they start that? It's like, you have to go negative time before it's like this weird integer, right? But it's standard. And so, and it's a standard thing that we, and again, it's like any join key is imperfect. There's no such, the whole idea, if you're going to agree on a join, case it has to be imperfect because it has to join all these different and, and like the English language is the most imperfect thing like if you ever if you have kids and you start to see them learn English you're like what the heck this is the terrible language that we all speak like it doesn't make any sense at all and you're like a qwerty keyboard is like this terrible thing that we all use right so like there's all these different join keys in our life and they all have imperfections in them but life wouldn't work without join keys and you and the more join keys you have the more you can actually collaborate and do if you if you even think of like coding okay are you a coding in like assembly or something are you coding in the machine language are you coding I agree with you but apple what? shares are a join key like we have a shared understanding of what an apple share is i have and no idea what the price of apple shares are today i actually don't know i don't know what the price and of a I dollar don't know is what, and i don't know what the price was th- three years ago do you I know have, what the price of a dollar is relative to a bitcoin or the relative to an eth uh, right this second? No. I, exactly. I, yeah, so what's yeah. the difference? Well, I, I think the dollar is a better join key. But and, don't you, you know, want both as alternatives? Like if you can have a more, a bigger universe well, I, I of possibilities. I think you get paid in many, many different ways. And you get paid in, you get paid in, you get paid in your shares in your company. Or if you join SafeGraph, you get paid in dollars and you get paid in shares in your company. But you also get paid in many other ways. You get paid in, I get to learn. I get, I get, um, I get certain, certain prestige I get paid in. Like you're not paying me anything for this podcast, right? Um, but I get like prestige for being on this podcast and I get learning from being on this. So you're, you are paying me in something. All I'm trying to say, Right. Is if you if you want to buy Comsor as quickly and reliably as possible, probably the best way to do that is to offer SafeGraph shares. I don't think so. You don't think so? Because now he, this guy who has no time to do due diligence, has to do due diligence on this other company. You got a great email signature. You're uh, like offering free data in your email signature. Like, who doesn't want equity in that guy? Well, but but he doesn't know. What, like, if I say uh, he has no idea what a share is worth. And he doesn't know what the preference stack is on top of it. And like, that's not his job. His job is to go build a You, you a blindly company. trust. You blindly trust in this scenario. Well, how do you, but how do you know? How do you, tr- so I want, I want five shares of Comscore for one share of SafeGraph. Is that a good deal? Is that a bad, maybe it should be five shares of SafeGraph for one share of Comscore. Like, What's, yeah. luckily we have these things called valuations, which usually price to some nominal degree. You, you know, it's like, you don't, you don't know if people are making things up. You don't know what send the shares are. Send them that over are. email. You send like, the TechCrunch article over email. But what, like the tech doesn't say the, the number of outstanding in shares the base, in, the, whatever. in the company. It's, I mean, the Carta it's public, not, it's, you it's, can't it's, share with Carta or well, something? It's so, I mean, you're you're taking a very simple thing and making it super complex. Like, you're taking a simple. super, you're taking a super complex thing and keeping why it complex. Is it, why is it, it complex be to pay in dollars? Like, it's the most simple thing. Why wouldn't you want like, the alternative? Like, whenever I go to a store, I always buy in dollars. It's simple. It's Wouldn't easy. you like to be able to buy a banana with like safe graph shares? Conceivably, if you well, could. I I would like to buy, but would I like someone else to, every time I wanted to go, every someone else, someone wanted to pay me for something, have, I have to go evaluate. Let's say I want to sell my, I'm selling my car right now, right? So let's say my car is worth $5,000 in dollars. 
and someone's like, I want to give you 42 shares in this thing, right, that I'm doing. Well, now I have to go, like, I have to spend all this time to go evaluate. Um, and then someone else comes to me and says, oh, and I, I got one thing, I got a car to sell, right? I can sell one guy, he gave me 42 shares in his company. Another guy is giving me, another is giving me 50 shares in their company. And then another gal is giving me 20 shares in their company. I don't know what's better. I now have to spend all this time like evaluating what is what. I just want to sell my car to the highest bidder. It's so much easier. Like if I was selling my car for five thousand, someone offered me fifty one hundred. I'm like done. I mean, you're um, you're free to say in your opening salvo, "I will only transact in dollars for this transaction." You're free to say that, but it would be nice to be able to also say, "I will accept SafeGraph shares for this car." Well, sure. Sure, I think I think you. I'm just saying that's yeah. the world I want to live in. Yeah, well, I think you do. And you, you would, do. You and could you do that right you would, now. Well, you, you and right you can either. offer Safegraph shares for Comsource shares, and it would be great. I don't know. First of all, if I don't. First of all, I don't want to sell Safegraph share. So, like, I own dollars. So and you I should own be able Safegraph. to trade shares in some other company. Yeah, own. probably yeah. there's some laggard that you would rather own Coms. You would rather own Comsource than the laggard. Well, the but that would be somewhat unfair to the CEO. And then plus, like, they're using these. In this case, I'm not buying the shares from the founder. Right, I'm buying the shares from the company, and the company you takes the money that that the investor puts in, and then invests that money in like say people's salaries usually to actually make the company more valuable. Right, so let's say a company raises ten million dollars, it's usually not going out the door to a person, and they're just keeping it. It's actually staying in the company's treasury, and then they use that to go pay. So, so it needs to be somewhat of a liquid thing that other people that you like other people are going to want. So if they were just going to take the SafeGraph shares and convert that into dollars so that they can go pay people, well, they might as well just have dollars to begin with because now you have like transaction costs that are coming in. Um, and most of the people they hire, like they want dollars. They want comp source stock as well, probably, right? But they also need to have, you know, it's like someone usually doesn't work for no dollars. Uh, some people might, but they, and just stock, but the vast majority of people like still need to pay their rent and they need to buy groceries and they need to do other things and they need dollars to do those things. So it's a, it's a very simple, like join keys, People can get very complicated about stuff and like everyone always wants to make a better join key and everybody always wants to make a better, you know, other types of things, but they're so important. And every time I like, so, and, and also like, the people who complain the most about join keys are the engineers because they're like, I can create a better join key. Like this join key doesn't make sense. And yes, they are, they are probably like the meter has problems. Like the, like all these different join keys that we use in our life all have incredibly weird problems that we all know about. You know, the English language is, is like, like the worst is like almost the worst join key, but it's still the core join key that we all use for everything. And with like Esperanto is so much of a better join key. And it was like a beautiful creation, basically created by like amazing engineers. But like, you know, you have these like cold start problems that are hard to, hard to, yeah, would it be better if like the whole world was speaking Esperanto? Probably. Like maybe that would be a better thing. I mean, I don't know. I've actually never spoke Esperanto. I don't know that much about the language, but like maybe that would be a better world. I don't know, but it's not going to happen. Um, we live in a world where basically like all, like most interesting conversations happen over English. The whole world has decided for whatever reason that this is the join key. Some people, they're native English speakers. Some people, it's their second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh language. But they've decided this is going to be the core join key when we go to a conference, when we talk you know, amongst folks, whatever. Like we're going to use this as a join key where we can understand. If you grow up in Sweden, like you understand I've got to go learn English because it's a join key so I can have conversations in other types of places, whether academia or even just to listen to this podcast. It's not translated to Swedish, I don't think.
Or you got a hard stop in like 10 minutes. Okay, last, last, last two SaaS products. Oh, last two SaaS products. Well, I mean, it's not something I started using this year, but I mean, SaaS product, I think is just like an amazing SaaS product is, uh, is Zapier. Um, yeah. and it's how amazing a, is that company? It's like, a great company. There's yeah. not really any competitors, right? There's like an open well, source. There are. No, there, there are, there are competitors that are a little bit higher end. There's a, there's, a, there's this French company called Integromat, uh, which is really cool. It's a little bit like if you're like a software developer and have that mentality. Do y'all it use probably Zapier works. a lot, by the way, in SafeGraph? Yeah, absolutely. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's got lots of problems and like, but it's really high margin too. The eight, those API businesses are such good Oh, yeah. So it's, a great, it's a great company in many in, in every way. Else, their cost of acquisition is so low because they have a great SEO component. Um, it's a great company. It, it has problems like, you know, they, when their zaps fail, they don't always tell you that it fails. And so it's like, oh, this, that zap wasn't running for three weeks. Like, I had no idea. Like, so, you know, they, there are definitely some things that uh, they could do to, to make it better. But it's it's an incredible tool, both for, like, your personal life. You can do things for your personal life. Do you? That's do really you have cool. your personal zaps stuff you use? Yeah, absolutely. I do, like, all personal things napkin and stuff. Gra- napkin graph related yeah yeah zaps. yeah exactly or you know I, I'll, I'll do things in like a, a news reading app and it'll automatically update on my twitter feed or you know lots of other what types is a of news things. reading app like uh, pocket yeah like pocket or something okay. like that yeah so it, like you know imagine pocket you can star something there and then I, i've got a i've got a you know i've got my normal twitter handle a-u-r-n orin right that you know oh, when, and then uh, you're but, reading but you're i've got, got orange reads yeah, and yeah, yeah. like and that's like that's odd like uh, so if i like I was something, wondering what that thing was. Yeah. So, so when you like something in well, pocket, like something it automatic, in pocket automatically puts it on that. And, and that, how much does that little, cost you? Is that like less than a cent in Zapier or something? Uh, I have no idea because I just pay a you know I, I just pay like a, a monthly fee for so so my, my marginal cost is zero because it is included in the in the monthly fee. Um, it's a, it's a great product. Yeah. Um, okay, and so you can get a you know company wide product as well. So you can get it for your, like your company and. Yeah, let's say let's say the company wide Zap product I think costs like three thousand dollars a year, which you know for a company is wait you know, what? Yeah, three thousand dollars a year for unlimited usage. Not or? unlimited, but it scales pretty well. You know, at some point you're going to end up paying cool. more. Safegraph. So pays you pay more. three thousand. Oh, we we market. paid three thousand until I think one or two months ago. Wow, that's and then, great. And then we had a scale that's to uh, higher. Yeah, so for a company to pay three thousand for and like a middleware product, it's like off, it's so it's nothing. Do you know yeah. off the top of your head any of the random Zaps that you use that you can disclose? Oh, we have so many. I mean, so like, many. like oh. if you if you go to any market, any company that's good at marketing, marketing teams are really good at using Zaps. You, um, you they're like, at, you, they're, there's going to be like hundreds of Zaps or recruiting. Any good company that's good at recruiting is going to have like hundreds of Zaps strung together. Right. So, so the, recruiting is essentially just marketing, right? So those would be like, you know, it basically allows you to do things that like before you needed engineers to go do. Most marketing teams, most recruiting teams don't have like an engineer, a good software engineer embedded in them. And so they have to use these APIs or these middleware tools or other types of things to whether it's like segment or you know whatever it is that you're, you're did, using. did you invest in airbyte or do you just use it at the company oh i invest in airbyte yeah airbyte. every every single live ramp alumni company is uh, uh oh that's a live ramp alumni oh yeah yeah, yeah 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 wow. all the basically all the whole engineering team including the, you, the ceo you, is a you live know what's ramp funny alum. is yeah. that the the competitors are not open source and i'm like i'm an, i'm an investor in high touch i'm sort of in, encouraging him to go open source. I just feel like all this stuff should be I open source. I touched the Airbyte competitor? Yes. Yeah, okay. Essentially, yeah. they're reverse ETL. Airbyte yeah. is forward and reverse, I believe. Okay, And yeah. Fivetrans forward, it should be in the same product. You want forward and reverse ETL in the same product. Airbyte does it all in open source. Airbyte's the winner as far as I'm concerned. And, I mean, and I'm saying that's an investor look, in there, there are new, there are Or new maybe com- it'll be multi-winner. Look, they're a new company and there's a lot, yeah, if you, you know, what am I? Um, French guys, uh, right? 
Sorry? French guys, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. One of, my, one of my close friends, Todd Saturdotti, started Pipe Dream, and they, they've got a, you know, a different take on it. And so, like, it's also like, who's the, who's the customer? Like in Pipe Dream's case, it's, it's the software engineer, and other, you know, in, 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 in Zapier's case, it's like the marketer, right? And so it's a, you know, so, so it's a different, you know, sometimes you have a different product for a different type of customer. For SafeGraph, like we sell data, but like the, our primary customers are our data scientists and machine learning engineers. So we have a specific type of customer that we're building this data for, and maybe a different customer may not find as much value out of our data, right? And so you're, you're, you have a, a prototype of a customer, and then you end up building for, or if you think of like Salesforce, okay, well, they, they have a very prototype of a customer that they're building their, their thing for. And maybe over time, you can like expand the number of types of customers that can use your product. Okay. Last product. Last SaaS product. Oh, ooh. Okay. The Starbucks mobile app. I like Simple. Starbucks mobile app. It's, it's pretty great. good. Yeah. Pretty good. It's really good. Except what's the worst feature of that app? Oh, I don't know. The default reload Close. amount. Oh, default, the default reload. reload amount. Like $20. It's $25. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, really? You're grifting me, Starbucks? Yeah, well, you know, in a, like, imagine an era of negative interest rates. You'd put, like, probably $2,000 on your Starbucks app. You can imagine, like, some sort of era where, like, you're getting negative interest but rates. we're not in, in that era. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're not we're, anywhere we're, close to that yeah, era. Yeah, that's true. I don't mind. It's $25. So, you know, I, I'm not I'm not a big Starbucks. I don't I don't go to Starbucks all the time, but I but I love Starbucks. It's an incredible company. Uh, also, SafeGraph customer. So I <laughs> especially love them. So I, I only buy from our customers. So. Right. so you'd prefer if the default was $80. No, I, I, I think it's fair. I think it's, I think it's because again, they want to lower their transaction yeah. fees, right? 25 is okay. It, it's it, okay. Goes, it goes exactly to your payments problem. If, yeah. if the payments, if, if the payments were zero, then they wouldn't need to do it. But because there's actually a pretty high, tra- and you know, remember the like Starbucks, like the, the average Starbucks, let's say transaction is, let's say $5 or something like that. So you're, you're, you know, cause you get that 30 cent initial payment plus let's say 2.2% on top of that, that 30 cent is a huge fraction of a $5 payment. So now 30 cent of a $25 payment, now you've just lowered that to, to a massive amount. So if the payments were lower then you would be, you know, they, they would, they would be less likely to. It's a good point, I guess. It's a good point, I guess. Maybe it's not such a grift. All right. Well, great episode. Anything else you want to talk about? No, this is really fun. All right. Thank you, Jeff. Cool. Great. Let me get Josh. That was great. All right.